A suspended chord is one where the third chord tone has been replaced, most commonly replaced with the fourth, but sometimes replaced with the second. It's referred to as a sus chord for short, but that does not mean the chord is behaving suspiciously, nor is it necessarily an imposter. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music with sus4 chords, music with sus2 chords, and sometimes music with chords that aren't sus at all. The episode you're about to listen to is entirely listener-supported. I don't have ads because I don't like ads. I don't think that any of you like ads. And the reason that we're all free from ads is thanks to your ongoing support of this show. If you would like to become a patron of Strong Songs, go to patreon.com strongsongs. On this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the most enduring songs ever written, a song whose legacy is matched only by the legacy of the incredible songwriter who wrote it. It's a song about the power of friendship, which is something I've been thinking about a lot these days. So let's call up our friends, suss up our chords, and sing it out. is a loaded word, especially when it comes to songwriting. We tend to associate it with a specific kind of love. Romantic love, the kind of love that features in a love story or a love poem or a love song. But while lots of love songs are about straightforward romantic love, many of the most interesting ones, and actually many of the ones that I've talked about on this show, are a little bit more complicated than that, and some of the best songs aren't about romantic love at all. They can be about familial love or the love of a group, or they can be about the simplest, most beautiful, and fundamental love of all. The love of a friend. I don't know about all of you, but over the past year, my friends have been the thing I miss the most, while also being the thing that's gotten me through a really tough year. I found all these new ways to connect with my friends, despite the fact that I felt really, really lonely a lot of the time. And after all these months, I've reaffirmed to myself the importance of friendship. I'm finally seeing people again. We're sitting close to one another. I can look at their faces while I talk. I hugged a friend, hello, the other day, and it was an amazing feeling, but it also made me really sad. Like, we're both vaccinated and it's finally safe to hug, and yet for so long it wasn't, and it was pretty profound being cut off from that. I'm guessing that I'm not the only one who feels that way and who has been kind of processing all of this lately. This past year has really helped me reaffirm the importance of friendship in my life, and there's this song that I just keep coming back to that really underlines how I feel. It is a beautiful song by one of my favorite songwriters, and every time I listen to it, it hits me all over again, this amazing song about one of the most fundamental and important things in life, the joy and power of friendship. You just So it's time to talk about Carol King and her classic ode to friendship, You've Got a Friend. Winter, spring, summer, or fall.
this song, I swear, like, like I said, I keep coming back to it because this is one of those songs that I've heard so many times and yet it keeps kind of sneaking up on me. I'll hear different versions of it at different points and each time I'll hear it, I'll think, man, that's a really good song. Like maybe I'll hear the James Taylor version of it. You just call up my name and you know I'll think, man, that's a really good song. And then I'll move on with my life, and a little while later, I'll hear Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway singing it. think man what a really great song that is just a really great song and then i'll move on with my life and then maybe a few years later i'll i'll watch this widely anticipated aretha franklin live show and and i'll hear her do it as part of this gospel medley song this is i keep hearing amazing versions of this song you've got a friend i you know i've been making this music podcast and i should really probably talk about this song on that show i've heard so many great versions of this song and as familiar as it's become every time i hear it some part of me still hears it for the first time i find that that's true a lot of the time a very plain spoken straightforwardly great songs like this and it's certainly true of this one so after watching that aretha franklin performance that's from her incredible concert film amazing grace which you can now finally watch everyone can watch it and you really should because it's amazing they bust out this medley version this like gospel reimagining of you've got a friend and it knocked me out all over again and I decided I needed to go back to the source back to 1971 when an already successful songwriter named Carol King released an album so full of hits that even all these years later listening to it feels more like listening to a greatest hits album than a record that a small group of people just sat down and recorded and then released that album is called tapestry and it really is one of the greatest albums ever recorded when you're down and troubled Before she released Tapestry in 1971, Carol King was already a really successful songwriter. She and her then-husband Jerry Goffin co-wrote some of the biggest hits of the 1960s, including The Drifters Up on the Roof, Something Tells Me I'm Into Something Good, and You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, which she wrote for Aretha herself.
Pink had also had some success recording and singing her own songs, but Tapestry was like a whole new thing. When she released Tapestry, she became a household name on her own, when in the past she'd kind of been in the background, you know, writing songs for record labels and for other artists. And that's a pretty cool and important narrative just on its own. It reflects a change that was happening in music more generally in the early 1970s. King was an industry pro. She'd been writing songs at the legendary Brill Building in New York, but she wasn't keen on performing. She wasn't a star or a performer in the way that many of the acts she'd written for were. Tapestry was, in many ways, the start of a new thing. It was right there at the dawn of the age of the singer-songwriter. After several decades where most pop artists played songs written for them by professional songwriters, like Carole King had been, Tapestry, it wasn't quite a folk record, it wasn't quite a jazz record, it was something a little bit different. The thing holding it all together was King herself. And that's the thing with singer-songwriter albums. The singer is the songwriter. Her authentic voice was and remains the thing that makes Tapestry work. And it did work. Tapestry was a huge hit. It won multiple Grammys. It spent weeks and weeks atop the Billboard charts. To this day, it remains one of the most successful albums ever released. You've Got a Friend is probably my favorite song on the album, but it's actually kind of a hard call. It kicks off the record's B-side, and it arguably isn't even the most famous song on the record. The album starts with I Feel the Earth Move, a total banger. I feel the earth move on the Then it goes straight into So Far Away. And then right into It's Too Late. But it's the first three songs on the album like that's where it starts and it just keeps going from there it is a ridiculous album it's a master songwriter at the absolute peak of her game i can't recommend listening to the whole album enough i've had this album in my life basically since i can remember actually my vinyl copy is a hand-me-down from my mom's collection it's this well-worn record that i've had since I was alive, basically, Um, and it's one of those records that's just kind of a fact of life. Like, I can't remember being introduced to it exactly. I just remember always hearing it. The, The cover art is just this picture of her sitting there with her cat, and I just associate it with being young and flipping through my parents' records and, you know, maybe putting it on and hearing some of those songs. But it wasn't until fairly recently that I really sat down and listened to it all the way through and realized what an incredible album it is. This work of genius that's just been quietly sitting in my record collection and that quietly sat in my parents' record collection before that, like an old family heirloom or perhaps like an old family friend. If the sky above you grows dark
Let's get into it. You've Got a Friend was written by Carol King and produced by Lou Adler. It features King on piano and vocals, fronting a very casual-sounding acoustic group. Her friends James Taylor and Joni Mitchell both contributed backup vocals, and Taylor played some acoustic guitar. James Taylor loved this song. He had recorded it previously on his album Mudslide Slim in the Blue Horizon, which was released the same year as Tapestry. King's album was a huge hit, but Taylor's cover of You've Got a Friend was actually the version that made it to number one. His version also features Joni Mitchell singing backup vocals. It's kind of a small world, that early 70s Laurel Canyon music scene. James Taylor, Carol King, Joni Mitchell, and some other musicians were all friends. They all played on one another's albums, and a lot of great stuff came out of this sort of Laurel Canyon zone um, in Los Angeles in the early 1970s. Joni Mitchell actually recorded Blue in 1971 as well, and James Taylor played guitar in it, so there's a lot of cross-pollination going on in this scene. If you want to know more about the legacy of Tapestry and just that whole time period, I recommend reading music historian Harvey Kubernick's wonderful chronicling of that whole time period and of this album. I've linked to a collection of his writing about Tapestry in the show notes. It's a thorough recounting of the album and its legacy. He details how the sound was organically produced by so many different facets of that early 70s LA scene, how the musicians who contributed to this album, from Adler, Taylor, Mitchell, but also vocalist Mary Clayton, her husband saxophonist Curtis Amy, so many great musicians, and how they all fit together into the broader West Coast music scene. The early 70s was an amazing time for American music. Tapestry was at a pivotal point. It was a pivotal album at that time period, and it wove together so many different threads into, well, I mean, the album is called Tapestry. Kubernick's writing is full of incredible quotes from so many musicians from that time period. He's got a great Q&A with producer Lou Adler. I cannot recommend clicking that link and reading it enough. It's down in the show notes. Go do it. He also has a book out about the Laurel Canyon scene from the 70s. It's called Canyon of Dreams. I haven't read it, but I bet it's great. And, you know, just a little bit more broadly, I always like when there's a sort of geographic and social element to a collection of albums that share musicians and producers and ideas. I always think of the Soulquarians in the early 2000s, D'Angelo and Erica Badu and Common and Q-Tip and all these musicians and producers who were working together on various albums. It's always really cool when there's a moment of time that spans across multiple albums. And it's pretty cool to listen to Mudside Slim and the Blue Horizon along with Tapestry and treat them as kind of sister and brother albums to one another. It's also just nice that Carol King and James Taylor were friends, and then they each released versions of this song about what it means to be friends with someone. You've got a friend. You've got a friend. You've Got a Friend is a simple song, and it's also a really elegant song, and I want to try to convey some of that simple elegance as we begin to break it down. King has described the process of writing the song as very free, like the song just poured out of her. That doesn't surprise me. I've had that feeling writing songs as well, and this sounds like the kind of song that would have that kind of process behind it. It's just got that simple, organic quality that a lot of great songs in this style have. It all just fits together exactly like it should. So to that idea of simple elegance, to begin with, there's the way this song constantly shifts between major and minor tonalities. You've got a friend cycles between A-flat major and F minor, which is the relative minor to A-flat major. The song has a really clear narrative in the lyrics, and the lyrics move between darkness and light very deliberately, and each shift is accompanied by a shift from major to minor. 
Though shifts also follow the song form, the verses are in minor and the chorus is in major. So when King is singing the verse and she's singing about being down and troubled when nothing is going right, she's very strongly in F minor throughout that. And then when she shifts to the chorus, you call out her name and wherever she is, she comes running, your friend, and she's there for you. And at that point, we're in A flat major. There are some nice transitions between those two tonalities and we'll get to them, but that's the general framework for the song. And it's super simple. I mean, like, that's super simple, right? You know, you're happy when it's in major and you're sad when it's in minor. But there's nothing wrong with being straightforward when you're doing it as well as Carole King does it in this song. It's actually kind of amazing to do it this well, and it's part of why the song is so timeless. So I've talked about relative major and minor in the past, but to explain it again since it factors so heavily in this song, when a song is in a given key, that means the chords move around a landing point called the one, and that's sort of the gravitational center of the song. So when a song's in A flat major, A flat major is the one, and that's kind of the gravitational center if you've got a friend. All the other chords revolve around that home base, and each chord progression is like a little excursion that eventually makes its way home. The magic of songwriting is the way that a specific chord excursion can navigate with the melody and chord progression to make its way back. And then of course also how you can sort of subvert expectations or not go home when you maybe thought that you were going to. A flat major has four flats, B flat, E flat, A flat, and D flat. The rest of the notes are natural. So an A flat major scale goes A flat, B flat, C, D flat, E flat, F, G, and then A flat. F minor is called the relative minor to A flat major because if you play an F minor, an F natural minor scale, it actually has the same number of flats, the same four flats, you just start and end on F. And so, yes, for people who've been paying attention to modes and have been listening to strong songs for a while, that means that a natural minor scale is the sixth mode of major, otherwise known as the Aeolian scale, but we're not going to do a whole modal theory thing on this, this is just, we're not going modal on this episode anyways. So in a lot of practical ways, A flat major and F minor are the same key. They have the same number of flats. They just have different root notes, different home chords, and thus there are slightly different rules for how chord progressions in those keys might work. You can really just say that you've got a friend as an A flat major. That's kind of the key that it's in. The sheet music is written in A flat major. It's not changing keys to F minor. It just has some sections that revolve around F minor. It's not as though the song is actually doing a modulation, like going up a whole step into B flat major. It doesn't do anything like that. It's just kind of moving around these two different points of focus within the same grouping of notes. I do think it's helpful to think of it though as constantly gear shifting between those two sounds, those two tonalities, A flat major and F minor, since King matches those shifts so effortlessly with her lyrics. You can hear that shift in full effect right from the beginning. The first chord of the song is A flat major. She hangs up there for a minute, but then she transitions to F minor for the verse. So right there from the start, we've got these two emotional poles. The song's entire harmonic globe is existing in microcosm, so like a little desk globe that you can fit on your desk. The very first chord, the north pole, is A-flat major. That kind of moves around between the one, the A-flat, and the four chord, D-flat major. Those are two super common chords in this song. A lot of this song revolves around the one, the four, and the five, the three most popular chords in American music, certainly in pop music. What I like about You've Got a Friend is that Carole King builds on this 
like very firm pop foundation, the one, the four, and the five. She's got these kind of foundational supports, but then she does some really creative and interesting things in between those supports to sort of connect them. There's a lot of ornate architecture around that very firm supporting structure. So here in the intro, we just start right on that one chord. Then she goes to the four chord with the A flat kind of pedaling in the bass, then back to one to the A flat major. And then she does this quick turnaround to the south pole F minor. She goes G minor 7, C7, and then lands on F minor for the verse. That's a 2 5 1 in F minor, 2 is G minor, 5 is C7, and 1 is F minor. This is all textbook stuff. I mean, nothing here is setting any new precedents, but just because it's textbook doesn't mean it doesn't work. It actually works really well. It's an effective way to begin the song. funny that intro actually reminds me of the intro to another one of the great friendship songs master songwriter bill withers is lean on me which he released in 1972 a year after tapestry Yes, don't worry, I'm definitely going to do an episode on Bill Withers. At some point here, I've actually been listening to him more recently. Uh, Man, he was really, really, really great. Um, So yeah, I'll do an episode on Bill Withers at some point. Maybe even on that song, we could have a kind of a one-two punch of friendship song. So that might be a little down the road. Anyways, it's just this classic gospel sound going from one to four in that way. It's in a billion songs. It's been heard in a billion churches. Carole King had a real gospel bent to a lot of her songs. And a lot of folks who've covered this song have added even more gospel flavor to it. So it really lends itself to that sound, and it's right in there from the very beginning with those first two chords. Alright, so let's listen to that first verse, and then we can pick it apart a little bit. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing nothing is going When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing, nothing is going right. This song certainly starts in that down place. We're in F minor, like I said, and it's just, you know, she's kind of setting the stage with things not really going very well. And I think we've all kind of been there, right? This song really kind of evokes these basic feelings in all of us and uh, definitely evokes that in me. The instrumentation is really stripped down. This is a stripped down recording in general on a stripped down album. It's at its smallest here at the start. It's mostly just King on piano and singing. Charlie Larkey is playing upright bass. He plays throughout. Over on the left, James Taylor is playing acoustic guitar. He plays some nice acoustic guitar lines throughout this recording and adds some backup vocals at the very end. Really though, it's all about Carole King, her voice, and her piano. When you're down and troubled Tapestry is also a stripped-down album from a production standpoint. It's mostly just instruments in a room. There's not a lot of reverb. There's kind of not a lot of polish. It's pretty loose. You can hear mistakes or out-of-tune notes, even in Carole King's lead vocals sometimes. And it gives it this laid-back, honest feeling that I think really works, and it's central to the song's emotional impact. Like, some songs on Tapestry are more produced and arranged, but with You've Got a Friend, that kind of polish is just not really what they were going for when they recorded it. If you listen to the James Taylor version of the song, that's much more polished and 
much more produced. And I like that version, but I prefer Carole King's version just because, I mean, partly because it's her song and it's an original, but it's also just the vibe of it is really nice. It kind of has a feeling like a collection of songs by a songwriter, just demo recordings, people live in a room recording together. And that live quality makes the song come alive to me anyways. To put it another way, each song on Tapestry feels like Carol King is telling you something, but never like she's selling you something. And nothing, nothing is going right. The harmony here is pretty straightforward at first. She goes from F minor up to a 2, the G minor, to a 5, the C7, and then back to the 1. So that's very simple from the beginning. We already did that once, and she just does it again. However, when she lands on that 1 on the F minor, she then does this nice little walk up followed by a little walk down. So the walk up goes from F minor up to C7 over G, up to F minor over A flat. So the chords are just going 1, 5, 1 in F minor. It goes F minor, C7, F minor. But she's using chord inversions, so she's putting the chords in a different stacked order so that the bass can move up in steps. It goes from F to G to A flat. So the chords are F minor to C7 over G to F minor over A flat. Gives it that feeling of moving up, even though the chords are actually just going one, then five, then one. And of course, if you want to hear a lot more about chord inversions and how they can be used in pretty amazing ways in songwriting, go back and listen to the episode on The Beach Boys God Only Knows, one of the most amazing examples of chord voicings and chord inversions in pop music history. So just listen to that part where she sings, And You Need Some Love and Care. And I'm going to play along and listen to how the bass moves up in steps, and it feels like this climbing sensation, even though that's not exactly or necessarily what the chords are doing. So as you probably heard in that example, right after it walks up, it walks back down. It crests at the F minor over A flat, and then it drops back down to C7 over G, then F minor over F, then F minor over C, and it actually ends up on a B flat minor 7th chord. That B flat minor 7 is actually the beginning of a transition back to A flat major. So you know how I mentioned that You've Got a Friend is always moving between the North and the South Pole, between the A-flat major and the F minor, and how it's clever and how it navigates those two very different sounds? This is an example of that. You can kind of hear it. It moves through this whole walk-up, walk-down that's very in F minor. I mean, it's just F to G to A-flat back down to F. Those are the first three notes of the F minor scale. Super sounds like F minor, but then at the end, right when it lands back on F, it just keeps going down, and then suddenly, boom! You hit this B-flat minor 7th, and it's like a little light switches on. You're in a different place, in a kind of a brighter place. You've been revolving around F minor, but then suddenly, you're in a B-flat minor 7th chord, and it doesn't feel like it belongs in the world of F minor at all. It feels like it belongs in the world of A-flat major, because it does. It's transitioning you ever so smoothly back to the world of A-flat major from the world of F minor. So here we're firmly in F minor. But then, and nothing, a little light comes on. Nothing is going right. And just for a moment, we're safe again in A flat major. Then we transition back to minor. Close your eyes and think of me. And soon, I 
So as you can already hear, I was being kind of reductive when I said that You've Got a Friend has minor verses and a major chorus. There's flashes of major brightness in the verse, just as there's pockets of minor darkness in the chorus. Lots of songs do that. They move between relative major and minor tonalities. There's a certain effortlessness in this song. There's an artfulness to how Carole King does it. And it really feels kind of reassuring and safe to me in this certain way. Like she's showing you the darkness, but she's reminding you each time she does it that it's okay though, there's also the light, there's also the major, she's here with you, and the only reason she's showing you this dark stuff, these sad circumstances, is because she wants to underline how no matter how dark it gets, she'll still be there for you because you've got her as your friend. So let me take you through the chord progression again, and this time I don't want to focus too much on the particulars, the two five ones. just listen for how she shifts so smoothly between minor and major tonalities to create an emotional arc. We're so firmly in minor here, but then and nothing, nothing is going right. we land safely in major before setting out again for minor. Close your eyes and think of me, and soon while the harmony slowly swings back and forth between major and minor, the melody is doing some cool stuff as well. King uses chords to build and release tension like we've been talking about. She does something similar with her melody. It's really kind of a steady build from the very first note she sings at the beginning of the verse all the way through to the end of the chorus. So she's starting in F minor and walking up to a middle C. When you're down. And as we talk about this melody, it's worth keeping in mind that everything after that opening phrase is building and building and building until she hits a high C up the octave at the end of the chorus. And I'll be there. So it's kind of all like one big arc. Like, you know when you go to the gym and you use a treadmill and it has this setting where it'll simulate hills? And then at the end of your run, it shows you a big graph with all of the hills that you climbed. Well, picture this melody, or any melody for that matter, picture it like that hill chart. You've got a friend as a series of smaller hills, but if you then look at the whole chart, you can see that you actually were climbing the whole time in a more steady, general upward trajectory. Some of those smaller hills are pretty cool too. If we go back to that ascending chord progression from the verse where she was using chord inversions to have the bass climb up and then go back down, the melody is actually doing the opposite of that. So when the bass goes up, then on top, King's vocal melody reaches a peak and climbs down. Put them together and you get some nice contrast. That's called contrary motion. It's something I've talked about a lot on this show because it's a pretty common trick. Contrary motion can be limited to like two voices inside of a large ensemble moving in opposite directions, or it can be as big as kind of outsized as it is here where the melody is moving in contrary motion to the actual rhythm section, like to the rest of the band. That's a really clear example of it. The end result is the same, no matter how big or small it is. There's just this feeling of tension and contrast between two musical elements, which even if you don't notice it, it just sounds rich and beautiful it makes the whole thing sound a little bit fuller and more interesting. Like here, check this out. I'm just going to play through that melody with the bass line, and then I'm going to have the bass go up to the A flat and move in the same direction as the melody. So we'll basically just remove all the contrary motion. Listen to how that sounds. just sort of less interesting, right? Listen to the same thing now with the bass ascending while the melody descends, so we're adding the contrary motion back in. 
Now listen to that part in the actual recording and really focus on that. Split your ears so you can hear the bass climbing up at the same time as Carol King's vocal melody descends. When you're down and troubled. Here we go. And you need some love and care. It's subtle and it's really beautiful. And nothing, nothing is going right. Close your eyes. Here in the second half, they do the same thing again. Listen for it. And soon I will be there. Lovely. To brighten up even your darkest night. You just go out my So I hope you're starting to use your mind's ear to see this verse as a collection of crests and valleys all steadily moving upward toward the chorus. Here at the end of the verse, King has a super nice transition into that chorus. It gives the song this feeling of a steady climb out of that pensive darkness of the verse and up to a new, brighter place in the chorus. She walks down to the B-flat minor 7 chord again, which remember the first time that was the start of that turnaround into A-flat major. She's definitely still targeting A-flat major here because that's the chorus. The chorus starts on A-flat major, but she draws the whole thing out a bit this second time. So she does the walk up in F minor and then down, lands on that B-flat minor 7, but then this time, the second time, she goes up a single step to C minor, and then she does a really cool thing over an E-flat pedal tone. It's a killer sound using a chord voicing that I'm very fond of. Um, I've talked about pedal tones in the past. A pedal tone is just when a bass maintains a static note and the chords move around on top of it. It's super common in all kinds of music. Here the E flat is the pedal and an E flat chord like an E flat dominant seven chord is the five chord of A flat. So E flat is very strongly setting up the A flat major chord on the chorus, but she's moving two different chords and chord inversions over that E flat pedal. She starts with a D flat over E flat, so that's a four over five, which is a classic gospel sound. Then she just moves her right hand up to be an E flat over E flat. And then she goes back to D flat over E flat, but she flips the inversion, so she's still moving her right hand up. So it just sounds higher, even though it's going back to the original chord. And then she goes to E flat again. So the four chords here are really just two chords. She's just using inversions to climb and you could just keep doing that. Like you could keep using the inversions to just go higher and higher and higher while really just cycling back and forth between two chords. D flat and E flat. The whole phrase is a steady climb and it's constructed in a cool way, especially if you play this on piano, because it starts by climbing in the bass in the left hand as the B flat climbs up to the C and then up to the E flat. But then once it hits the E flat, the left hand stays put and the right hand starts climbing. So it's like a kind of a relay race handoff. It goes from climbing in the left hand to staying put in the left hand while the right hand takes over and reaches the summit on its own. Man, I really do love 4 over 5. You've heard it a thousand times, this chord progression. If you've ever gone to church, you've heard it. It's super common in soul and gospel music. It's such a strong sound as a kind of replacement for a 5 chord. Like instead of playing an E flat chord, if you just play 4 over 5 and then resolve to 1, it's this sound. 
Like I actually used the same cadence of four over five resolving to one at the end of the year two Strong Songs theme. So you hear that progression at the end of every episode of Strong Songs. It's a great penultimate chord. So if you're a songwriter, the next time you're thinking about using a five chord, maybe use a four over five instead. All right, so let's listen back to that final phrase of that first verse and listen to how King steadily builds from that B flat minor seven chord up a step to C minor, and then she pedals E flat in her left hand and uses those chord inversions to go back and forth between four over five and five as she climbs her way into the chorus. Ears on, here we go. Close your eyes and think of me and soon Now here comes the bill. To brighten up even your darkest night. You just call out my name. And you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. So this chorus, this eternally enduring chorus, keeping with the way we've been thinking about the melody as sort of crests and valleys, this chorus melody is a perfectly constructed crest. It's actually two crests. Each one is just like this build up to a crest and then back down. And then there's a second build to an even higher crest and then back down. Just taken as a melody, it's pretty straightforward, but it works in a really logical way. The first statement is built out of this shape. And then the song goes to the four chord, and the melody just moves up a fourth. It's the same shape, but up a fourth. And then that phrase crests with the line, I'll come running, and then returns with to see you again. Now that's a nice melody on its own, but it really becomes special with how it fits with those lyrics. This is the first phrase of the chorus. There are two phrases in the chorus in total, so this is the first half of the chorus. Each phrase is a single sentence, and that sentence is constructed so that the words of the sentence correspond with the flow of the melody, so the sentence reaches its resolution at the same time that it reaches its highest melodic point. Both times that resolution takes the form of a promise. So the sentence starts with, you just call out my name. So this is a command, but we don't know why it's a command yet or what she's sort of promising will happen if we do that. We just know that she says, call out my name. So that's the first statement, that first part of the sentence, which is the lowest part of the melody. After that, we get the next part of the sentence, and you know wherever I am. So that's developing what she's telling us, but there's still no resolution. We haven't really gotten to what she's telling us will happen if we do these things. She's just telling us to do them. So it's a little bit more developed, so it's higher up. We're up on the four chord. She's singing a little bit higher, but it hasn't resolved yet. And then the whole thing resolves. The sentence comes to its resolution when she sings, I'll come running. That's the highest point of the melody, and that's also where the sentence resolves. That's her promise to us. She'll come running to see us again. It's so dramatically paced and delivered, it adds this powerful emotional arc to the phrase as a whole. These two lines of establishment, and then her promise on top. I'll come running. You just
There are a few new musical elements in the arrangement here for the chorus. Danny Cooch has joined on the conga drums, so that's a steady groove that's going on. That's actually the only percussion featured on this tune at all. This is also where Joni Mitchell's backup vocals come in. She's mixed very close with King's lead vocals. And again, it's it's so laid back sounding, and I really love that about this recording. I just I find it so unusual and so refreshing to listen to. It sounds like some people sitting around a piano in someone's living room somewhere just playing music together. the vocals get a little bit loose in terms of intonation, but that kind of just makes it sound more intimate and honest to me. Her piano playing is also really interesting. It's totally the dominant sound. I mean, the piano drives this entire recording, but it does so in a way that makes me think they didn't spend too long arranging this. They just kind of learned it really quickly and recorded it. Like, the way that Carole King is playing piano on this, and actually on a lot of tapestry, it's how a songwriter plays piano when they're writing a song. Big, full voicings, double bass octaves in the left hand, the right hand is doing all of these cool figures. The entire ensemble, as it were, is sort of handled by both of your hands. This is something I've found, at least when I write a song on piano and then I take it to a band to teach it to them, a lot of times I learn that I, I have to play less, like I have to relearn the piano part, because when I was writing it, I was playing everything by myself. I was like handling the bass and the, you know, the counter melodies and everything with both hands while I was singing the song. But the bass player is going to do what I was doing in my left hand. And, you know, maybe the guitar or the other instruments are going to do what some of the stuff, you know, that I was doing with my right hand. So I need to play a lot less in order to make room for them. They're not doing that at all on this tune or on a lot of tapestry, it just sounds like what it probably sounded like the first time that King played through this song by herself. It just sounds like a songwriter's recording of her song that some other musicians just kind of learned the changes and joined in on. That approach doesn't always work on every song, but I think that it works beautifully here. It creates this just very relaxed and very intimate vibe. So that's the first half. The chorus grows much more complex in its second half. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you have to do is call, and I'll be there. You got a friend. Melodically and lyrically, the second half of the chorus follows a similar structure to the first half. It's a single sentence with two segments of setup. First, she says winter, spring, summer, or fall. You don't know what that means. It's all setup. All you have to do is call. Okay. And then she crests with this promise yet again. And I'll be there before she rests on a simple statement that also happens to be the title of the song, You've Got a Friend. So that's the melody, but harmonically, the second phrase introduces some interesting wrinkles. The first half of the chorus is super straightforward. One, four, one, five. That's like as straightforward as you can get. In the second half, it starts on one again, A flat major, but then it shifts after a bar to A flat major nine. So it's got a major seventh and a nine on top. It's just a richer and more complex sound. Then it goes to the four chord like it did the first time, but it's a D flat major seventh, and this time it goes up to F minor, which didn't happen the first time. Then it walks down to an A flat seven over E flat, and then goes back to D flat major seven. 
So that's just a more complicated, a sort of richer and more complex chord progression than the first time through, while Carol King is also singing up higher. She sings, and I'll be there, hits a high C. So on a D-flat major 7 chord, that C is the major 7. That melody note is really emphasizing that major 7th, which is something that's happened on a few different strong songs, actually, where the melody note is a major 7th. It's a really good one to go for, and that's what makes that sound the way that it does, that C on top of a D-flat major chord. And then she walks it back down to A-flat major. So listen again and pay attention for those subtle changes, the way that that major 7th comes in, starts on an A-flat major, but then it goes to a major 7th, the way that the D-flat chord is also a major 7th, that walk down from F minor to A-flat 7 to D-flat major 7th, and then the final cadence at the end. Many more chords, more harmonic information, just a more interesting second half. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. There's that major 7th. Really good stuff. I love the way she goes down from that F minor, that whole extended chord progression through the end of the phrase that matches so beautifully with the way that she's singing and her kind of reaching that crest on that high C. It's really songwriterly in a way that I think is just lovely. Like this is where you can really see how Carol King is just a master songwriter who has written a whole bunch of songs. It's just got that kind of really natural feeling to it, especially when you look at it on piano and just look at how nicely it all voice leads and flows from one part to the next. All you have to do is call And I'll be there You've got a friend Interestingly, not everyone uses that turnaround. I've been listening to a bunch of different covers of the song, and when Donny Hathaway does the song with Roberta Flack, they do a pretty cool substitution at this point in the chorus. When he and Flack sing All You Have to Do Is Call, instead of doing that songwriterly walk down that King wrote, where it goes from F minor to A flat 7 over E flat to D flat major 7th, Donny and Roberta are not interested in that. They just hit an F sharp chord or a G flat major chord, and they drop right back down to D flat. So they don't do that whole walk down, they just walk it up. All you have to do is call And they hit the chords like that. It's pretty cool. Listen for it. All you have to do is call And I'll be there You got a friend It's pretty cool, right? It's a little bit funkier, a little bit less songwriterly, but it works for the vibe that Flack and Hathaway were going for. This is a great record, Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway, two amazing musicians collaborating at like the peak of their careers. Really cool stuff. Super funky band on this also. Actually, Bernard Purdy, who but Bernard Purdy played drums on a lot of this album, though Billy Cobham actually played drums on this cover of You've Got a Friend. But I mean, Billy Cobham, also a great drummer, so killer band on this record. All you have to do is call And I'll be there You got a friend And actually when Aretha Franklin covers this song, she does that F-sharp as well. So definitely more than one way to crack that particular egg. I really like the way that Carole King wrote it. I also really like the way that other people have interpreted it. That's kind of the cool thing about covers, I guess. And I'll be there So with that first chorus done, it's time to just rinse and repeat, do the whole thing all over again, this time with a nice string quartet. 
The second verse follows the same basic structure as the first verse, same chord progression, though King is starting to stretch a little bit more vocally. Keep your head together and call my name out loud. Soon <laughs> Sounds great with the string quartet in there, just sort of emphasizing what was already there the first time around, and the build-up to the second chorus sounds really great with that string quartet in. You just There's also some really nice string counter melodies going on during the second chorus. You can hear that looseness again with the way that King and Mitchell are harmonizing there. She kind of just lets go up into her upper register and Joni's just kind of following her along. Like it's it's just really loose. It feels like people just finding the song together. I love the spontaneity of this recording. So you can hear that, right? There's some nice stuff happening with the strings, but mostly it follows the same template as the first chorus. It's all building up to the same cadence here at the end. Setting up what's gotta be one of my favorite bridges of all time. Now ain't it good to know that you've got a friend when people can be so cold They'll hurt you Yes, and desert you And take your soul if you let them Oh, but don't you let them You just call Man, writing bridges is hard. Every time I hear a great bridge, I immediately clock it and then I think, Man, writing bridges is hard. Because writing bridges, it's hard. The bridge to You've Got a Friend totally does that for me. I hear it and I just think, how is this bridge so natural sounding when writing bridges is so hard? The thing that makes it work so well are the bookends, at least to me, the chord that it begins with and the chord that it ends with. It starts with a new chord, a G flat major, which immediately tells us that we're in a new place. We haven't heard a G flat major chord in this song yet, so they're coming out of the chorus, you know, she resolves to the A flat, and then suddenly she hits a G flat major, different sound. So here we are, we're on the bridge, we're in a new place. From there, it mostly moves through the same chords as the rest of the chorus. It's just in a kind of different order. It goes to D flat, then back to A flat major, A flat major nine, a lot of stuff that we've heard before. This whole time, King is actually singing dark lyrics. She's talking about how it's nice to have a friend given how terrible people can be. She sings, they'll hurt you. That's over the four chord. And then she sings, they'll desert you. And that goes up back to that G flat chord. And then she ends in such a beautiful way, she actually extends the phrase on the bridge. The bridge is 10 bars, even though generally this song has revolved around 8 bar phrases. On the 7th and 8th bar, she sings the lyric, they'll take your soul if you let them. That's melodically the highest point, the crest of this bridge, but then she adds this 2 bar tag to the end. Two extra measures to say, oh but don't you let them. And that's that cadence with the four over five, then finally going to five to build back into the final chorus. And take your soul if you let them. Oh, but don't you let them. You just call. It's so good, it's so simple and so good. It's really kind of hard to describe 
why I like it so much. I mean, I know I just kind of did, but just something about the way she says, "Oh, but don't you let them." It's so reassuring. It's empowering of me as a listener. It's not just saying, "Yeah, I'm your friend. I've got your back." It's saying, "But you also have responsibility here. Don't let these people tear you down. You've got me. You've got yourself. You have your own strength." I don't know. There's just something so great about it. It's so understated and so beautiful. Oh, but don't you Both King's original arrangement and James Taylor's version from the same year, 1971, those both follow this form. It goes a verse, a chorus, a second verse, a second chorus, and then the bridge. Interestingly, though, when Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway recorded it a year later in 1972, they changed it up. They skipped the second verse and go straight into the bridge after the first chorus. You know what? I actually think that that change works super well. I like King's original arrangement. It lays out the song really well. It's nice and long and it's paced in a very long way. It's like a five minute recording and the bridge hits three minutes and 15 seconds into the recording. So it's pretty far in. When the bridge does hit on Carol King's recording, I'm always like, oh, right, there's this new section. And that's really cool. That's a cool feeling that there's something new after hearing so many familiar sections for such a long period of time. However, I gotta say, I think if I were covering this song, I would go straight into the bridge the way that Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack do. I think like getting to the bridge faster, it just works really well. Maybe it's just because it's such a good bridge. But I love landing on that G-flat chord right after the first chorus. It keeps the audience engaged. I think that it's actually one of those rare cases where a tweak like this actually works pretty well for the song. Oh, but don't you let them You just And from here, the only thing left to do is to sing that amazing chorus one more time on the way out. I don't know if Carole King knew how anthemic this song would be when she wrote it. I don't know if she knew what impact it would have. But the minute people heard it, whether it was her version, James Taylor's version, Hathaway and Flack's version, Aretha Franklin's version, or any of the other versions of this song, When people heard it, they knew this song connected immediately. It was instantly iconic. And that's actually the thing that convinced me to make this episode. I was was out on one of my morning walks like about a month ago. I was listening to music like I do on my morning walks. And the album for that morning was Donny Hathaway Live, an amazing live recording. It was recorded at the Troubadour in Hollywood in 1972. Incidentally, a club where James Taylor had played a lot with Carole King opening for him before Tapestry came out. When Hathaway recorded this live album, it was a year after Tapestry. So I was walking along and I was listening to this incredible band, this incredible performer, and above all, this incredible crowd. It was such an amazing feeling just hearing people together sharing in something like that. I got that feeling, you know, that feeling that you get when you're at a live show? In my mind's eye, I could just see it like I was there in a whole group of people all sharing in a musical moment together. So they finish one song and they're starting the next song and what does Donnie play but a pair of very familiar chords. (laughs) 
1972, so of course he's going into his arrangement of You've Got a Friend. So he sings a solo version of his arrangement of You've Got a Friend, which he did with Roberta Flack and recorded earlier that year. He goes all the way through the first verse and then he sets up the chorus and something amazing happens. Even your darkest night. He stops singing entirely and the audience takes over. You just standing there thinking, is there anything better? Is there anything truer? Is there anything more human than this? Carol King's beautiful words and her beautiful melody, her beautiful ode to friendship sung by hundreds of strangers united by a single song. And that's the thing in the end, that's the thing that makes this song great. It's more than just the expertly drawn melody or its careful navigation between those emotional north and south poles. It's more than a lovely sus chord or a perfect bridge. In the end, it's that You've Got a Friend is a perfect song about a perfect subject. It's a song about a thing that's easy to take for granted. And because of that, it's a thing that's all the more important to write a song about to remind us there are few things in life more important than our friends. Winter, spring, summer, or fall All you have to do is call And I'll be there, yes I will You've got a friend You've got a friend And that's how Carol King chooses to end her song You've got a friend she tells us once, she tells us twice. She'll tell us again and again, because life will make us forget. You've got a friend. You've got a friend. And that'll do it for my analysis of Carol King's You've Got a Friend. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it's inspired you to go check out some of the recordings I mentioned. Tapestry, of course, is an all-timer, but there are really a lot of incredible versions of this song recorded by a lot of incredible artists over the years. Thank you all so much for listening to Strong Songs, and thanks for spreading the word. I still hear from so many of you that you're telling your friends about the show, and I do think that sharing music and the love of music is one of the most meaningful things that you can do with your friends. You can back the show on Patreon at patreon.com strongsongs, and you can find social and newsletter links down in the show notes, and you can always drop me a line at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com with Q&A questions, requests, feedback, really anything. 
As vaccines continue to roll out and life slowly begins to grind back to something resembling normal, I'll just end with another reminder to try to find ways to support artists and musicians in your community or in the broader community at large. Buy albums, go to see shows, order t-shirts, recommend some music to your friends. It's up to all of us to support the music and art that we want to see in the world. This episode's outro soloist is Bay Area saxophonist Charles McNeil. Charles recorded this solo earlier in the year, and he's got just the vibe, I think, to take us home on this episode. So stick around for Charles, and I'll see you all in two weeks with yet another strong song. <laughs>